The book of Mark, chapter number 4, if you would turn there with me in your Bible, please. The book of Mark, chapter number 4. Our subject today is the parable of the soils, the parable of the soils. Mark, chapter 4, in your Bible. Mark 4, and... I'm going to read one verse of Scripture, so I'll not have you stand. It will be so brief. One verse of Scripture right now, and then much more later. Mark 4 and 13, follow with me in God's Word. And he, that's Jesus, said unto them, Know ye not this parable? And how then will you know all parables? Now, stop and focus on that a moment. That's not a verse you hear read probably very often publicly. Jesus said, if you don't know this parable, you won't know the rest of the parables that I'm going to be giving to you. This parable is key to understanding the other parables, and so I want you to know this parable, Jesus said. Read it again. Know you not this parable? Don't you know this parable? Well, if you don't know this parable, how then can you know the other parables? I'm in my Bible reading and my personal devotions, as many of you are, and I, this year, chose the plan. It's the two-year Robert Murray McShane plan, and my Bible reading led me to the book of Mark here in the New Testament, and so I'm reading the book of Mark, and you know, sometimes you're, as a pastor, you study and study, and you just don't get excited about anything. You're reading the Bible, but you respect it as God's Word, but it just doesn't hit your heart. And then suddenly, pow, it hits your heart. I was reading my Bible, and I came to this portion in John 4, and boy, it stirred my heart. And I sat there and studied and made a few notes. I thought, someday I may preach a message on that. And then that led me over to another one. I ended up, in the, and, and I'm going to say the Lord gave me. He enlightened my mind, illuminated my mind, uh, I believe. And in a moment, I had three or four messages here. And I just, you know, you, sometimes you study all day and not have one. And I had four in 30 minutes. And I said, I'm on to something here. And so I've written those out. In fact, I hope you'll come back tonight And we're going to go back to Mark chapter 1 and start where you ought to start if you're going to preach in a book of the Bible. But I'm not going to start in the opening of the book because I already had this message uh, before I I found the others. So at any rate, uh, I got excited about this passage of Scripture as many times as I've read it. It's wonderful. Let me tell you a little bit about the book of Mark, though, the Gospel of Mark. There are four Gospels. This was the first one that was written. This is the oldest gospel, the earliest written gospel. It's the shortest of the gospels by about half, much shorter than the others. It is the action gospel. Over and over and over you find words like immediately, straightway, then. And, it's, and it doesn't give the detail the other gospels do because it's shorter. Mark obviously was a big picture guy, even as illuminated by the Holy Spirit as he wrote the words here. But he was dwelling on what Jesus did more than some of the other gospels. And we know about John Mark. He was on Paul's missionary journey. Barnabas and Silas and John Mark and Paul were the team. 
And there was a big dissension among them, and uh, they sent John Mark home. We don't know all the details of it, but later, we presume, he wrote this gospel. He probably was a family, his family were probably family friends of the Lord Jesus Christ. His mother owned a house in Acts chapter 12 and verse 12. It says that they met there for that prayer meeting when Peter was in jail. It was John Mark's mother's home where they met for the prayer time, to, and Peter was then released by the Lord. So it's a great gospel. I've re-fallen in love with this book, and today I thought I'd begin preaching, and I, I don't know how long I'll preach in it, but for a while. Thirty percent of the ministry of Jesus Christ was parables. One out of every three verses uh, in the Gospels ends up in some form of a parabolic teaching. What is a parable? There's a definition of it. It's a good one. You may want to put it down your Bible. A parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. An earthly story, but the point of the story is not to just tell a story to entertain people. The details of the parable are to convey a truth. An earthly story, but it has a spiritual or a heavenly meaning, if you will. Matthew carries this parable. Mark, of course, we're looking at it. And Luke, Luke also has an account of it. I'll be switching back and forth too fast for you to turn there. But Matthew chapter 13 and Luke chapter 8 also record the very same parable. And in Matthew chapter 13 and verses 10 and 11, the disciples came to Jesus. And they said, Jesus, why do you always speak to us in parables? Have you ever wondered that? I've wondered that. I thought, well, if the Lord is going to tell us something, why don't he just tell us? Why does he have to illustrate it with this story? You know, the, for example, the prodigal son is a, is a parable. And why didn't he just get to the point and tell us the principle? But Jesus was the master teacher. He knew that people can remember stories, and so he so often one-third of his preaching was narrative, storytelling, telling about an interesting thing and then making a spiritual application to it. But why did he use so many parables other than the fact he wanted to engage people in the, in the audience? Well, two or three reasons that you can find hinted at in the Scripture. One, his enemies at this time, and Mark is a very short book, spends a lot of time talking about the events of the death and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we're about halfway through his ministry in chapter 4 here. We're well into the ministry in chapter 4. And his enemies had rejected him, and they came to him, the scribes and the Pharisees and some others, and all they ever wanted to do is argue and debate every point. Everything Jesus said, they wanted to take him on. You know, they hated him. They were trying to destroy him. They were already plotting his death. And so the scribes and the Pharisees Every point that he made, he had to defend it. I'm sure he got weary of doing that. The second group of people that attended his ministry were the multitudes, great crowds of people. The multitudes that came to hear him were indifferent. Over and over, they say, why don't you do a miracle? Uh, why don't you do something else? We want to see a trick, Jesus. And they were interested in a sensationalism. You know, today, masses of people can be drawn by sensationalistic religious leaders and so on. Well, this was no exception right here. 
Jesus, do a miracle for us. Matthew chapter 16, it talks about that in other passages. And Jesus said, I'm not here to do tricks for people and to sensationalize my ministry. I'm here primarily to preach and teach the gospel of the kingdom of God. And so then he had the third group, and that were the people who really wanted to know. And those people who wanted to know, he taught them in parables. And the Pharisees would listen, and they wouldn't quite get it, and they wouldn't debate with him at least. And the multitudes, they weren't too interested in that. But the people who wanted to know the truth of God's Word were interested in study of God's Word. Are you interested in studying God's Word? Paul said, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman, that needeth not to be ashamed. I hope that you will not be ashamed when you stand before him because you spent your life studying. You say, I don't like to study. Well, this is an area where study is essential. Your soul depends upon your willingness to study. In the busy, over-busyness of American life, modern life today, a lot of people don't want to study. They tell me that many people never read a book after they graduate from high school or college. I believe it. I've talked to some of them. It's obvious they're not students. But you're to be a student as a Christian. You're to be a student of one book above all others, the Word of God. Are you taking time for that? The style of our ministry here is built around that. The Bible says the world considers the preaching of the Word of God foolishness. They laugh at it. You saw that in the debate the other night with um, Ken Ham and Bill Nye. But we who know the Lord, we don't laugh at it. This is what we're depending upon for our soul. I hope you're taking time to study that you're a serious student of the Word of God. And I promise you one thing, when you come here, you will hear the Word of God. You won't hear me tell stories for 30 minutes. I'll use some to illustrate it. I told a long story the other night about a man catching a bass. I'll tell stories. I illustrate. But you know what? I'm not here to entertain you, and I'm not here to sensationalize the gospel. I'm here for you to know the Word of God because the day will come when it will be the most precious thing in all the world. It will be the only thing that will give you peace in your heart as you face eternity. Mark chapter 4 and verse 9, notice Jesus said, if you have ears to hear, you can hear. You can know if you want to know. Most of the reason people don't know the Word of God, don't know about Christianity, is because they don't want to know. If you want to know, you can know, and God will reveal His truth to you. And in Mark chapter 4 verse 13, we've already read it, but look at it with me again. If you want to understand all these parables that follow here in the book of Mark, you must understand one parable, and it's the parable of the sower. It explains the other parables to us. Have you ever wondered at the different ways people respond and receive God's Word when they come and hear it? It's incredible to me. I think about that often as a pastor. Here are two people come and sit in the pews of the Florence Baptist Temple. One person grows, loves the Lord, becomes a deeply spiritual person with God's power in their life. They grow, they move out of their 
sinful habits. Their life changes. They are filled with joy and peace. And boy, their life is, they're making progress in their life. And their friend, maybe even family member, maybe a child or spouse, comes and sits right beside them. Here's that same group saying, Lord, we bless your name in their heart. Our hearts are lifted up with praise, but they don't seem to be touched. And then I stand here and open the book of God. I preach, teach, and one person is growing and moving forward in their spiritual life, and the other person sitting right beside them, maybe their own flesh and blood, it just rolls off of them like water off of the proverbial duck's back. What I'm preaching right now relates to our goals. If every class is to be a growing class and every member is to be a growing Christian, then this is going to be the explanation for why we do or not do it. In verse 3, the parable of the soils. Hearken. Behold, there went out a sower to sow. It came to pass, as he sowed, some of the seed fell by the wayside and the fowls of the air came and devoured it up. And some fell on stony ground where it had not much earth, and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of earth. And when the sun was up, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. Some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no fruit. Other fell on good ground and did yield fruit that sprang up and increased and brought forth some thirty, some sixty, and some a hundred. And he said, He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. You can know what this means if you want to know. Let's look at the five figures here in this parable, this earthly story with a heavenly meaning, if you will. In verse 3, we have a sower. Now, the sower is Jesus, says that in, in Matthew, and the sower is those of us who seek to spread the word, who spread the gospel. Are you a person who talks to other people about their soul, and you talk about the Lord Jesus, and you share the gospel, and you... You invite people to church and you try to get the word out to people, then you are one of those sowers. The sower is though, refers to those who spread the word. The soils, there are four different kinds of soils represented here. And the four kinds of soil, listen to me carefully, they represent the way people receive the seed that is sown, the way they listen. And whether they accept it, and whether they really imbibe the truth of God's Word. The seed that we sow, if you will look there in verses 14, 15, and 16, you'll see that it refers to the Word of God. I'm sowing right now as I stand here and read the Word and preach and teach the Scriptures. The seed, the good seed. In fact, in the parallel passage over in Luke chapter 8, verse 11, it says specifically, the seed is the Word of God. So there's no question about the interpretation there. And then in verse 4, it refers to the fowls of the air come and snatch some of that seed up. And the birds there are none other than Satan and his demons. You will find that specifically stated there in verse 15. The birds that come, Satan comes and snatches away the Word of God. And then the field, according to Matthew 13, 38, is the world. The field, they're referred to as the world. Now, through the years, there's been a lot of really bad teaching right here. I've even heard preachers preach and say the field is the church. Wait a minute. 
That makes no sense if you think about it. That's people who had the amillennial and postmillennial view of, of the Lord's return. They believe that the, the field essentially is the church. But no, the Bible says it. Look at Matthew 13, 38. Don't look at it right now. Write it down there. The field is the world. And when Jesus pushed back and sat in the boat there as he taught this parable, an interesting little sideline is that in the Bible, the sea is always a picture of the nations. And so he pushed back in his boat and began to teach this very passage of Scripture. If you will notice there in verse 1, he entered into a ship and sat in the, in the sea, back from the, the land a little bit. And the multitude was on the shore. And he taught them, but his very being, his position in the sea represented him speaking to, worldwide, universally to the nations of the earth. Let's look at those soils here. Go down to verse number 14, if you will. The sower soweth the word. And these are they by the wayside, wayside. So in your Bible, you might write down a road or a footpath. The wayside is the first type of soil mentioned there. Now, if you'll think about it, a wayside, a path or a road, the soil is packed down. The soil is very, very hard. So the seed lies on top of the ground. It never does penetrate, so it never grows. That's why the devil can come. And the devil swoops down, and he takes the seed out of the heart of the person represented by the hard-packed soil of the roadside. Now, that's a powerful, powerful picture there, a metaphor, if you will. Is there anybody here, your heart is very, very hard, very, very hard? And you hear the pastor speak, you hear the Sunday school teacher teach, you read the Bible occasionally maybe, but it never does penetrate. Your heart is hardened, hardened for a number of different reasons. But remember this, if that seed doesn't go into the soil, the fowls, Satan and his emissaries will take that seed away. Then in verse 16 and 17, we have the stony ground. These are they, likewise, which are sown on stony ground, who when they have heard the word, immediately receive it with gladness, but they have no root in themselves, and so they endure but for a time. Afterward, when affliction or persecution ariseth, for the word's sake, immediately they are offended. So we have the second soil. We call it the stony ground here. When I was in Israel, I noticed that Israel, in Israel, the soil is rockier than probably almost anywhere I've ever seen in the United States. In fact, over in the corner of many fields, the farmer has gone through there over the years and, 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 and piled up the stones. And you'll see piles of rock higher than my head heaped up there because the farmer has cleared that out as he encountered those with his plow point or whatever. And you see that everywhere in Israel. In fact, they tell me that in much of Israel, there's a limestone layer and a thin layer of soil, and they have to gradually break that up if they're going to grow uh, a good crops, productive crops. This is the stony ground. Now, notice about the stony ground here, the type of person represented by the stony ground. When they hear the word, immediately they receive it with gladness. They initially receive it. 
And they do it with gladness, emotion. They're full of joy. They say, oh, I found it. I've got it. What I want you to think about is there are people who come to church. They respond, but this is the person who responds with a a strictly emotional response. With gladness. Oh, I'm so thrilled. These are the people that get saved and are red hot for the Lord. Everybody around them wishes they'd cool down. They They drive you nuts. But it doesn't last is the problem. They hear the word, receive it with gladness. They have no root in themselves. They never get grounded. And so they endure but for a time. How many people do you think live in the state of South Carolina this morning who went to a church, heard the gospel, heard the true gospel, were emotionally stirred, made a profession of faith, got baptized, joined the church, got in there, and three months later, you can't find them. They're gone because the stony ground represents that kind of heart, an emotional, a superficial response, but they can't endure. And notice, afterward, when affliction or persecution arises for the Word's sake, sometimes persecution comes for different reasons. But these are people who they go out one day and they stand for the Lord. Somebody really offends them, really opposes them, and because they were offended over the Word's sake, they turn back. It's just not worth it, they say, to live for the Lord. I just can't stand that. And so they're immediately offended, and the word offended there in some translations is stumbled. They stumble and they fall because of that. You've seen people like that. They get saved, and they are higher than a kite. And then in a little while, they're gone. We have that happen here with our best effort and intentions. It still happens. It's the ground the seed fell on. They heard the same gospel that the person did who's been serving the Lord for 40 years. The seed is the same in every illustration here. It's the ground represented by the human heart that's different. Then if you'll notice, the thorny ground, verse 18. These are they which are sown among thorns, such as hear the word. And the cares of this world, just the the responsibilities and busyness of life, and the deceitfulness of riches. This is the person who's chasing the dollar. This is the clamor who says, I'm going to make it big. This is the guy whose God is success. The cares of life, the deceitfulness of riches, and the lust or desire for other things entering in choke out the word and it becomes unfruitful. These are the people who come and hear the gospel of Christ, but there's so much going on in their life, and boy, is this not relevant in the world, the overbusy world of our times. These people come. And they hear the Word, and they believe the Word. They receive the Word. But they really don't have time for the Word of God to ever make a huge difference. The thorns described as cares of this world, this life. Deceitfulness of riches, the pursuit of materialism. The lust of other things, good things, not bad things necessarily. 
It might be recreation. It might be sport. It might be family. It might be, I mean, it could be any number of things. They're not bad in and of themselves, but there's just too much going on in life for them to ever grow. These people, there's competition for the seed. The thorns take all the moisture, take all the nutrition. So they never reproduce the cares of this world. Up there in the wayside, it's the devil who takes the seed. On the stony ground, it's the flesh. It's an emotional thing, feeling-oriented, sensationalistic religion that dies out pretty soon. With the thorny ground, it's the world. Notice it even says that, verse number 19, the cares of this world. The world is the competition. So we have the world, the flesh, and the devil always busy. The devil snatching the seed from the hard heart. The flesh rising for a while and then falling down in discouragement. Feeling-oriented religion, if you will. And then the thorny ground, competition from the world about us. The fourth soil, 20. And these are they which are sown on good ground, such as hear the word. Number one, they receive the word, and they bring forth fruit. And among the people who bring forth fruit, there are three different degrees of fruit, some 30-fold, some 60-fold, and some 100-fold. Hey, think about that backwards. Some people, they reproduce 30-fold, which means 70% of what they hear is wasted. Some 60-fold, which means 40% of what God gives to them, they waste. And that rare, rare individual, a hundredfold, everything they can get from God's Word, they absorb it, they learn it, they receive it, they apply it, they obey it, and they practice it. And their, their life is full of fruit. What did Jesus say in John 15? I think I quoted it to you the other night or last week. John 15 and 8, Jesus said, Herein is my Father glorified. How is God glorified in our lives? Herein is our Father glorified that we bring forth what? Much fruit. Not a little bit. Not just a tad. And when I set a goal this year as a pastor, and I say to you, my goal is that every member of our church Every member, a growing Christian. I'm talking about this right here. That I could, God would somehow use the ministry of the church and myself and others, that we would move the 30-folders up to 60-folders and the 60-folders up to 100-folders. And some people who've never borne any fruit at all up until now, They've been fruitless in their life, but they would begin that they would lean in the right direction and take a step in the right direction. Are you a fruitful Christian? Does your life have fruit? What do you mean fruit? I don't mean be a fruity Christian. Fruitful Christian. Big difference in one syllable there, huh? I've met some fruity ones, but I'm looking for fruitful ones. Fruitful. What's a fruitful Christian? Two things. One, a fruitful Christian has the fruit of the Holy Spirit manifest in his or her life. Love, joy, peace, 
long-suffering, gentleness, kindness, meekness, temperance, self-control. You see, they have the character of the Lord Jesus through His Holy Spirit reflected in their life. That's the fruit we call it of the Spirit. The Bible specifically talks about that. So if I'm a growing Christian this year, I'm growing in my love, my joy, my peace, my patience, in the character of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. The second way I'm fruitful is by using my influence to reach other people around me, to reproduce, if you will. And uh, reproduction simply means that a Christian reproduces Christians. So are you fruitful? Are you growing? Well, that's what this is about. The wayside soil, hard, packed down, and the devil snatches all the seed, and the person doesn't even remember what they read in their Bible reading in the morning, perhaps. The stony ground, where there is an emotional response to it, but it's superficial. There's never any root. The person lives off of their feelings, up and down and up and down. There is that thorny ground hearer, competition from the things of life. I want to live for the Lord. I just mean to get around to it. It's just we're so busy right now, Pastor. I know, I know, but he still wants you to be fruitful. And then there's that good ground, and 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. Now, if you understand that one, and I've spent nearly all my time on it, but go with me down. There's another parable here. There's the parable of the bushel and the candle. It's so short, you read through it and don't even think, I've read a parable. You say, I read a verse, but it's a parable. Verse 21, he said unto them, is a candle bought to be put under a bushel or under a bed? Any of you ladies ever light a candle and put it under the bed, cover it up, or stick a tub over it? That's what he's saying. And it's ludicrous. Obviously, the answer is no. You would never do that. You put it on a candlestick, Jesus said. And he's making an illustration here. He's saying we must be busy then getting the light out to the world, to these people with these four different kinds of hearts. Because the first parable interprets all the other parables there, verse 13. You saw that. And so we want to preach, and we want to teach, and we want to share the gospel, and, and we want to live a clean testimony, have, a, have an impeccable moral purity in our lives. Look at verse 23 and 4. This is what he's saying. If you have, any, if you have ears to hear, let him hear. And he said unto them, take heed what you hear. Watch out what you hear. For with what measure you meet out or you give out, it shall, be, it shall come back to you. And unto you that hear shall more be given. Let me interpret that for you. If you and I receive God's Word and apply it into our heart, He will give us more. But if we don't, if we don't listen to His Word, take it seriously and share it, and live it out in our lives, he's not going to give us more. In fact, he says in verse 33, look, skip down there. With many such parables, he spake the word unto them as they were able to hear it. Note that last phrase. As they were able to hear it. Some people are not even able to hear it. Why are they not? Because they won't act on what they have. 
There's a great principle there. The Bible's saying, listen, the Holy Spirit's not going to teach me anymore until I use what I've already got and share it with other people. The more I know, the more I'm responsible to give out God's Word and be that light, that candle, if you will, that shining testimony for Him. Look at verse 25. It's interesting, too. He that hath to him shall be given, and he that hath not from him shall be taken, even that which he hath. In other words, if you do not receive it and apply it, you'll lose what you have. Spiritually, you'll back up. You don't just say, well, I went to vacation Bible school as a child, and I, you know, I go to church every now and then. I know about that stuff. You're even going to lose that. You're going to lose the ability to be spiritually discerning and to truly understand God's Word and His will and plan for your life. It's use it or lose it. Use it or lose it. That's what the Scripture's teaching here. Now, and then the third parable, 26 through 29. And he said, so is the kingdom of God as if a man should cast seed into the ground and should sleep and rise night and day, and the seed should spring and grow up, but he knoweth not how. For the earth bringeth forth the fruit of herself. First, there's the little blade springing through the ground. Then the ear comes on up the full stalk, and after that the full corn in the ear. And when the fruit is brought forth immediately, he putteth in the sickle, because the harvest is come. So this is the parable of the seed, the parable of the seed. We have the soil. And then we have the bushel and the candle. Use what God gives you. Don't hide it under a bushel or it will be taken from you. Pretty challenging words, don't you think? And then the parable here of the seed, which is unique to Mark. You don't find it in the other accounts. Once the seed is sown in the ground, the results are in the hand of the Lord. Notice with me that phrase there, he knoweth not how. That's in um, verse 27 at the end of it. The man puts the seed into the ground, verse 26. He goes to sleep, and he goes through his daily routine. He rises up and lies down to sleep. And the seed is in the ground, and it springs up, and it grows, and he knows not how. He's just going on with life, and the seed's been planted. Out here in the PD, we live in a great farming area. These farmers are getting ready and putting seed in the ground. The farmer cultivates, he works, he plows, he fertilizes, he prepares that soil. And then that seed is put in the ground, and you know what? He's done everything he can do with it. He can't do one thing about it. The seed lies there in the ground. It is up to God to bring forth the life. The farmer has done everything he can do as a man. Now it's in the hand of the Creator. And I stand here today, and I preach the gospel. I look into these cameras, and we preach it all over the region. We go by the tables, and we give out the tracts. We teach the Sunday school lessons. We go and visit people and talk with them about their souls and their spiritual life. We do everything we know how to do. And yet, once we've done it, we've done all we can do. The seed is in the ground. And so I close my Bible, and I go to my home. And I sit down today, and I eat lunch with my family, and guess what? I've done everything I can do. 
My responsibility is to sow the seed, to tell you, and then to pray that your heart will be prepared and you will hear it, and then that you will be moved and submit yourself to the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. I can't do anything else. I want you to look up one passage here. It's in the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 11, because it is so much a parallel and is so important. Once the seed is sown, the results are in the hand of God. And in Ecclesiastes number 11, listen to these words. Verse 4, he that observeth the wind or the conditions, the circumstances of life, will never sow. He that regardeth the clouds, guys laying in his bed, he looks out the window and says, it's cloudy today. I'm not going to go to work. He doesn't reap. Thou knowest not what is the way of the Spirit. We don't know how the Spirit of God is working in this room right now, nor how the bones grow in the womb. Isn't that interesting? How is it that a mother gets pregnant? She drinks milk, and she eats broccoli, and she eats a hamburger, and yet bones are formed in her womb. Only God. Only God. We don't know. And we we plant the seed in the ground out here, the farmer. He puts that little kernel in the ground. How does that kernel become life and then reproduce a thousand grains of corn, kernels of corn? on one cob. And how is it that a preacher or a Sunday school teacher or a faithful witness for Christ spreads the seed of the gospel and it changes one life? Life comes out of that. That person may become a great, great servant of God and their impact have so much influence for the Lord Jesus. Notice the last phrase of verse 29 there says, there's one other responsibility we have. We sow it and we put in the sickle. We sow and we harvest, but everything in between depends on the Lord. Now, look up here at me for a moment. I hear people say, and you've heard people say, but it's not well said. It's partially true, but not fully true. I hear people say, you will be lost if you don't accept Christ as your Savior. That's partially true, but not fully true. You know what is fully true? May I say you're already lost if you've not received Christ as your Savior. It's not that you're going to be lost. You are lost if you reject His Word. And you know what this parable is really about? It says, it is your response to the Word of God. Hear me. It is your response to the Word of God. What kind, the condition of the soil in your heart. It is the way you respond to the Word of God that determines where you will spend eternity and how you will live your life here. Both. It's your choice whether you listen to me here or not. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. And one person sits here and their heart is touched and changed. Another person sits here, that was good for the guy behind me, but not right now. 
the heart is hard. The primary reason people reject the message is right here in verse 12 too, by the way. They realize that to be converted requires a change in their life, a change in direction. Conversion by its very definition refers to change. Are you letting God's Word work in your life and change your life today? That's the question. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed.